The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. Father God, would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts to behold and believe and cherish and live in light of all that you have said. Help us to see and know Christ. Father, do what only you can do, please. Otherwise, the moments to come are gonna be nothing other than just a TED talk, a speech, the ramblings of a man. Father, by your spirit, speak to us through your word now. We ask it for your glory and for our good. And in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So if you were with us on Good Friday evening for our Tenebrae service, you recall that we read through the Passion story together. If you missed that service this year, don't, don't sweat it. God willing, we'll do it again next year. But it's a meaningful time as we recall the humiliation and the pain and the suffering that Christ Jesus endured for the sake of of his people. And what we do on that Good Friday is we hang a black sash around our cross out front. You've probably noticed that. There's a darkness that comes with that. And it's healthy for us to remember that those first century saints, Jesus' apostles, those who walked and lived and ate and did life alongside Jesus Christ, they didn't quite yet understand that Easter was coming. You remember what I said to you out there on those front steps? I said, we call this Friday good because we know that Sunday comes. They didn't. And it's clear that they didn't. So the day after Friday was Saturday, the Sabbath, a day of rest. So the followers of Christ, they did what the law commanded. They rested, although I have to imagine it was the least restful rest in the history of the world. It was all manner of anxiety and fear. And Judas was already dead. He had taken his own life. It seems as though he did this before Jesus was crucified. You have to know that Peter kept replaying in his mind over and over and over again. Jesus looked me in the eye and he told me what would happen. I swore with everything within me I would not deny him. And then three times. John was probably busy comforting the Lord's mother. You remember that Jesus had looked to him upon the cross and said, Woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. He had given charge of his mom over to this disciple whom he loved. And you have to imagine that John was there comforting Mother Mary and For the first time, maybe she fully felt the weight of what Simeon had told her there in the temple when she came to dedicate this child. You remember he looked at her and he said, a sword will pierce your soul. Jesus is dead. This isn't just his mother. These are people that have given their whole life to following him. So surely their minds were racing and they were thinking back over the last three years. Had we missed something? Was this all just some kind of gigantic misunderstanding? We thought that Jesus was the Christ. 
We thought that he was the son of the Most High God. And what else could explain the things that he did and, and the way that he spoke? And we were there when the demons came into contact with him, and they seemed to know. They seemed to believe that he was from God, and they fled. So no, we, we didn't dream this. And then we were, at the, we were at the baptism, some of us, and we remember how when Jesus was baptized, there was a voice from heaven that said, this is my son, my beloved son, with whom I am pleased. And then we heard the word from Peter and James and John about what they heard up there on that high mountain as Jesus was transfigured, his, his glory no longer being held back in full by the veil of his flesh. And there was a voice there too, that same voice that said, this is my beloved son with whom I am pleased. Listen to him. But could God really allow his son to die like this? It didn't look like, it didn't look unlike every other crucifixion. You remember that Pilate, after having Jesus flogged and beaten, he brings the Lord out before the people. And what does he say? Behold the man. Because he looked just like a man. And he bled just like a man. And he died just like a man. And there was some extraordinary things that happened. Yeah, there was the earthquake. There was the sun going dark. There was dead people coming out of the tomb. We're still not even sure how to, how to understand this. But he, he died just like a man. But then there was a thief on the cross next to him. And he saw something. Even though Jesus didn't look anything like a king in that moment, the thief next to him on the cross, he seemed to see something. He knew that he was a king. And he knew that he was righteous. And he knew that death wasn't the end of his kingdom. He knew that the only way to have access into the kingdom seemed to be through trusting in the king. So the, the, the thief, he saw something. And then there was that one centurion. As, as he saw the way that Jesus died. He, he didn't die like everybody else. It was almost as though he was the first man in the history of the world that would just lay down his own life, not willingly going to death only, but he could actually give up his own spirit. And so that guy, he, he seemed to get it. He said, surely this one is the son of God. But would God allow his son to stay in a grave? Would God entrust his son to Sheol and allow him to see corruption? So you, you can imagine how their minds are all over them. They're, they're putting pieces together and they're sharing stories and their own regret and, and shame is surely overcoming them. But there had to have been somebody there in that group that remembered not one, not two, but three times Jesus had said, this will happen. Mark 10, 33, see? We're going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. But there was another line. What was the other line? How did he finish that? And in three days, he will rise again. But still, they didn't get it. Beloved, you've got to recognize that of all the thoughts that were going through the minds of these first century believers, Jesus Christ rising from the dead didn't seem to be one of them. They seemed to have no clue that in less than 24 hours from this point, they would see Jesus Christ alive again. 
And we're reminded that sorrow and fear and pain and loss does amazing things to the mind. Causes us to doubt things that just moments earlier we would have sworn were true. Things we had given our whole life to. But then when the pain hits and the things that are before our eyes don't seem to match up with the promises that have been made, all of a sudden doubt settles in. And it's clear that they didn't appreciate what was at stake here. They had lost this one that they loved. They loved Jesus not just as Lord. They loved him at a very personal and human level. And, and, the, and the pain of that loss and, and the, the sense of, of just personal disappointment was surely what was filling the moments, filling their minds in, in, those, in those moments. They didn't, they didn't really appreciate all that was at stake here. If Jesus Christ was still in the grave, if Jesus Christ was left dead, then he was a liar. And if Jesus Christ was left in the grave, if Jesus Christ was not raised again, then they had participated in his lie. They had given their lives to spreading this lie to everyone they met. Again, I tell you, they probably weren't having these kind of deep theological thoughts in this moment. It just hurt. It was just sad and it was scary because the Jews were still out there and surely if they were going to try to crush Jesus Christ whom pre who preached this message and they were going to try to destroy Lazarus whom Jesus had raised from the dead, surely they're coming after us next. But there was two guys. There, there's some men on, on a road to Emmaus and they seem to get a, a little bit more of the, the bigger picture. They recognize, at least to some degree, what was at stake here. This is a matter of, is Jesus the Christ or not? Is Jesus the promised Messiah or is he a fraud? You remember what they said to Jesus? We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel, but now he's dead. Now, not unlike the rest of the Jewish people, what they meant with the redemption of Israel was a military and a political king. That's what they longed for. Not unlike most people today. They want a Jesus that's going to bring immediate and an earthly end to suffering. They want a Jesus that's going to make their life seem better right now. Deal with the physical and fleshly things that are around us. That's what these men long for. But the question is valid. How can he redeem us? How can he rise up and lead us in a rebellion if he's dead and laying in a tomb? Now, we know that what they needed redemption from is the same thing that every one of us required redemption from. Sin and Satan and death. Because every single one of us in Adam and now in and of our own desires, we've lived in rebellion against God. He's told us very plainly what the cost is for that rebellion. It's death. The whole of humanity under a curse. God is furious. The day will come when he will judge all men and those who are found in sin he will destroy. This is what the people needed redemption from. And these are the kind of things that Jesus spoke about. Every time someone would pull out a sword to try and lead some kind of earthly rebellion, he would say, that's not why I've come. I don't need the efforts of men. I could call down legions of angels if that's what this thing required. But I've come to give my life as a ransom for many. I've come to destroy the works of the devil. I've come to set you free from the fear of death, the curse that is represented there. 
But if Jesus Christ is dead, he remains dead. What did I read to you earlier out of 1 Corinthians 15? If Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you are still dead in your sins. You see, if Jesus Christ was allowed to remain in the grave, then this tells us very plainly, he must have died for some sins that were his own. The grave must have had a claim on him. He can't be the perfectly righteous one. He can't have an infinite righteousness to give to those who have placed their trust in him. And God must not have received his sacrifice as a full and final payment for the sins of those who are in him. The father's wrath has not been propitiated. We are still under condemnation. We are still condemned to die. We are still slaves to sin and to Satan if Jesus Christ remains in the grave. All of that is what is at stake here. If Jesus Christ is still dead, then all hope is lost. Because man can't work his way out of this problem. There's no amount of earthly righteousness that we can gin up to make up for one ounce of sin and rebellion against the infinitely holy God. Jesus is still dead. All hope is lost. So I ask you to stand to your feet, please. We're going to turn to John's gospel, John chapter 20. John chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. As always, I remind you that this is the holy, inerrant, sufficient, authoritative word of God. We not only thank him for this word, but we live in light of it. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going towards the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and he went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet he did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where, you've, where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary? She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbi, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and to your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. 
and that he had said these things to her. All God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. So it's now the first day of the week, that is, Sunday, the Sabbath has passed. We read that Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. Now the question we might be tempted to ask is, how did Mary know where to go? How did Mary know what tomb was Jesus' tomb? Well, you may recall, it's, I think it's been two years now since we concluded our time, something like two years since we kind of came to this story in our time in Mark's gospel. And you'll recall from our time there that there were two secret disciples of Jesus, one called Nicodemus. He was the one that had come to Jesus by night. We read about that beautiful exchange there in John 3. There was another one, though, a man named Joseph of Arimathea. He was a rich man. And you'll remember that Joseph had gone, although he had secretly been a disciple of Jesus, he now, after Jesus' death, saw fit to go to Pilate and ask for Jesus' body. We're told that Nicodemus had bought 75 pounds of aloe and myrrh. And it, what they did was they took the aloe and the myrrh and they took Jesus' body and they wrapped him in fresh linens and then they placed him in this tomb in which no man had ever been laid. Matthew's gospel tells us that there, sitting across from the tomb, was Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. Mark's gospel told us that the other Mary was Mary, the mother of Joseph. It says that they sat opposite of the tomb, and it expressly tells us that they saw the place in which Jesus was laid. That they then watched the stone as it was rolled across the face of the tomb. Then the sun goes down and the Sabbath begins. We know that that's the way the Hebrew people marked time. As the sun went down at the end of this day, it marked the beginning of the following day. So as the sun went down on that good Friday, it was now the Sabbath. So that the women then returned home. We know then, as I told you earlier, they rested. But we read that it's now the first day of the week. It's now Sunday. The Sabbath has passed. And we read that Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. But what was Mary Magdalene going there to do? Was she just going like so many of us do? You go to the tomb of one who has been lost and you just, you, you, you speak to God maybe in their presence or some people maybe speak to the loved one as if they're still there. Maybe there's just something about the physical closeness, being close to where that body is laid that means something to them. Is that what Mary's doing? Well, no, thankfully we can look back to Mark's gospel and it tells us that when the Sabbath is passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. So it's not just Mary Magdalene, that there's a number of women. There are a number of Marys, and I would encourage you, anytime you're trying to study the Gospels, this is a book called The Harmony of the Gospels, and there's a number of them out there. I think I got this one for 20 bucks on Amazon, something like this. It's worth $20,000 as you seek to harmonize the various gospel accounts and try to figure out the timeline because we've got a lot of different people moving in a lot of different directions. This isn't a high school play. This isn't Jesus' tombs over there. Here's all the Christian people and we all just move together and lockstep over to the tomb. And it's, it's a linear story. It doesn't work like this. You've got people coming and people going and people crossing paths and different perspectives on, on what's being recorded for us. And so something like this can be incredibly helpful. And as you work through and try to harmonize all of the gospel stories together, you realize that you had Mary Magdalene. You had Mary, the mother of James, the wife of, wife of Cleophas. You had Salome, the wife of Zebedee, who was the mother of James and John, maybe Jesus' aunt. There's other women that are there too. Luke tells us there's someone named Joanna that's there. 
So we don't know how many women were there, but certainly it was at least these that have been listed. But in John's gospel, it's Mary Magdalene that catches his eye. It's Mary Magdalene that he wants us to focus on. What was she going for? She loved Jesus, for one. And she had nothing to gain. Again, I tell you that certainly there was great danger in being identified with Jesus Christ at this point in time. Anyone whose name was attached to Jesus, they were in danger of death and persecution. It was a great deal at, on the line. But we read that she was going because they wanted to, she and the other women were going because they wanted to anoint the body of Jesus. Much like Mary had done, the other Mary, Mary the sister of Lazarus had done on the night when they were reclining at table, having a dinner together in Lazarus' house. You remember that it was there when Mary had come and she had anointed Jesus beforehand for his burial. And you remember what Jesus had said on that night, this woman has done a beautiful thing for me. And perhaps that was running through the mind of Mary Magdalene and the others as they remembered, now Jesus is dead. I want to do a beautiful thing for him. I want to honor him. I want to honor his body. So they wanted to go, even if they couldn't fully explain all of this in such clear terms. So again, Mark tells us that the Sabbath had passed and the women went to buy spices. So again, here's how this would have happened. If the sun goes down, Mark's the beginning of the next day. So it's now, it's now the Sabbath. It's Saturday. The sun goes down. Generally, that's when you could see the first two stars in the sky. As the sun goes down, you know that the Sabbath is over. And that leaves you a very short window between then and bedtime when you can run to market and do some business. So the sun goes down. It's not bedtime yet. The Sabbath is over so I can buy and sell and trade. I go to the market. I buy the spices. And then I come back home and wait for the sun to come up so that I can make the two or so mile journey to see Jesus in his tomb. Are you with me? So, the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. Now, Mark tells us that as the women were traveling together, they were wondering to one another, who will roll the stone away from us, for us, from the entrance to the tomb? Again, these women had been there, and they watched as Jesus was buried. And what would have happened was, they laid him in this tomb. It's much like a small cave. They would have laid him in this tomb, and then there would have been a large flat stone, almost like a wheel, that was laid against the side of the tomb. There would have been a rut that was dug down in front of the tomb so that it's really easy to roll the stone over. Just one man could have done it, maybe even a woman. You just kind of got to get the momentum going and then gravity does the rest and it rolls and it settles down in this rut against the face to the tomb. But it could have taken as many as 10 or 20 men to move such a large stone back up and out of the rut. So these women were wondering to themselves, we're just women. Who's going to move this stone for us? Who's going to roll this thing away? In addition to this, they knew that the Sanhedrin had gone. They had asked a guard to be placed at the, at the face of the tomb. We know that they had gone and they had asked not only for this guard, they had asked for the tomb to be sealed. So these women are wondering to themselves, who's going to deal with all this? We don't know. We don't have to have all the answers. We just want to go and honor Jesus. We want to do this beautiful thing for him. So Matthew tells us the answer. Matthew tells us that, behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. Just like that. God took, God took care of not only the stone, but the guards. An angel of the Lord comes down. There's a great earthquake. The stone rolls away. The men, I'm assuming they just fainted or something like this. They fell out like they were dead. The angel sits there upon the stone. Now, you can imagine if this thing is happening at dark, 
just the shock in and of itself of this glorious, radiant angel coming before them. So they fall down, and we don't know where the men have gone. We're not going to hear about those soldiers anymore. We're not going to hear about the guards anymore. Did they finally come to their fences and, uh, senses and run away? Did the angel move them out of the way? We're not told. We are told that Mary Magdalene shows up, and she saw that the stone, this is back in John's Gospel, she saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Verse 2, So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Mary does what is wise. She goes to Peter, who is the clear leader of the apostles, and there with him is John, the one whom Jesus loved. But you notice her first thought isn't what Jesus said would happen has happened. Her first thought isn't the impossible has happened. Her first thought isn't Christ Jesus has been raised. What's her first thought? Someone has taken away my Lord. This is what is so silly about these people that say that what we witness here in these stories of the resurrection are some type of mass delusion or some type of wishful thinking on behalf of the people. This wasn't wishful thinking. They weren't thinking it. They thought anything but this had happened. And so panic, thinking grave robbers have come and taken the body of our Lord. You can imagine the thoughts. If someone you loved is not any longer laying in the grave and you're not thinking they've been raised by God, you're probably going to be panicked thinking, how are they desecrating my Lord's body? How they treated him so awfully as he was alive. What are they doing to him now in his death? So Luke tells us that the other women remained there at the grave. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. We begin to see why this stone was rolled away. See, if we're not careful, we're going to believe that what happened was God sent this angel to roll the stone away so that Jesus Christ could walk out of the tomb. Beloved, a stone is nothing for the risen Lord. There seem to be stories in the Gospels where Jesus Christ may be walking through doors, just coming in and out of rooms while the door is still locked. I don't know what you do with some of those, but clearly... The glorified, resurrected, powerful Jesus Christ, the stone is nothing for him. So why then did God have the stone rolled away? To provide a witness so the ladies could see in. Mark tells us that entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right hand, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. Luke tells us that the two angels appeared like men. I suppose this was so that these women wouldn't fall out like dead men like the guards had done. But they go ahead and they peek into the tomb and they see these two angels there. And you see the beauty in God's working in this, his, his providential hand just, just weaving together everything perfectly. Because you've got to understand that if the women hadn't seen where Jesus was buried, we might be tempted to believe they went to the wrong tomb. If the Sanhedrin hadn't demanded that guards be placed at the tomb, we might have believed that his disciples stole the body away. And if the angel hadn't have rolled the stone away, we might be tempted to believe that Jesus was still laying in the tomb. But God, to make sure that we had all this evidence, he continued to move things so that we could know without a shadow of a doubt that Jesus was dead. That Jesus was buried. And that his tomb is now empty. But even that, in and of itself, doesn't tell us the whole story. You see, God's always got his messengers. God always has his preachers because he knows the faultiness of men's minds and our thoughts. We're, again, especially under times of stress and fear and pain and sorrow. And so praise God that he always sends his preachers. He always sends his messengers. And so we find there that there are these angels and God is speaking to these women through these angels. And I'll read to you all three accounts from Mark, from Matthew, and from Luke. And you get the picture pretty clearly. Mark 16, 6. And the angel said to them, do not be alarmed. 
You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. Matthew 28, 5 says, But the angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen. As he said, Come, see the place where he lay. Luke 24, 5, The men said to them, Why are you seeking the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day, rise. See, God had given a witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ in the empty tomb, but he knows how our minds work. And so what does he do? He provides a second witness to point to the first. Here's what you're to do with this picture. Just as man is not able to look to the stars and rightly understand the glory and the honor that Jesus is due, instead we suppress it. Just as man is able to take the conscience that God has placed within us and the law that is written within the, within the minds and the hearts of even the reprobate and to suppress that, he says, I will send my messenger, I will send my preacher, I will send my angel to explain to you what this is, to tell you what you're meant to do with it. So Mary tells the men, back to Mary. You've got to jump around a lot here, brother. So Mary has now reached Peter and John. She's told them, we don't know where the Lord is. Seems as though somebody has taken them. So Peter went out with the other disciple. This is John. And they were going towards the tomb. Both of them were running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. I still don't know what to do with this. Why John makes it clear that he reached it first. People make all kind of jokes, you know, that not only was there sibling rivalries in, in small towns, but there were family rivalries in small town and that these two rival families, they, even at this moment, they were battling it out for who was the fastest. I think it's just one more detail God provides us. It's a healthy reminder that this thing happened in real time with real people. And one of those people was faster than the other or ran harder than the other. That we're not just studying some philosophy or some theology or some idea of something that might have happened. This is a historical event down to who won the foot race. So we don't know where they came from. Were they coming from John Mark's house in Jerusalem? Were they coming from Bethany on the other side of the Mount of Olives? We don't know. But we read that in stopping to look in, this is John. He looked and saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. But then Simon Peter came following him, and he went into the tomb. And he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Now, I've heard some really bad sermons revolving around this picture right here. Probably some of you have as well, where men try to allegorize the whole story about what the face cloth being folded over here meant and what the linen cloths over here meant. And they, they, they try to drive some, some real sketchy theology based on this. And they mean well. Don't, don't get me wrong. These aren't twisted men. These aren't men that don't love Christ. But I think sometimes we can get too clever for ourselves. I think what God is trying to show us here is that this was not a thing that was done in haste. Robbers don't come in and make your bed after they clean you out. After robbers steal the, sil the silverware out of your drawers, they don't push the drawers back in and tidy up after themselves. It's to make clear that there were no grave robbers here. That these weren't men that were working hastily. It was completely under control, so much under control that the linens were here, the face cloth was here. I think it's also meant to be given to us as a picture of comparison between Jesus and the man he had raised called Lazarus. You remember when Jesus was going to raise Lazarus from the dead, he called on men to roll the stone away. Here an angel of the Lord does it. 
And do you remember what happened as Lazarus came out of the tomb? We read that the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped in a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. There was a difference between Lazarus and Jesus. Jesus Christ was raised physically, and we must never forget that. That the resurrection of Jesus Christ was not just a spiritual resurrection. It was not just his philosophy and his theology and his teachings were somehow raised up in the hearts of his people. That Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the eternal Word, the one who had come to take upon himself flesh, that he died in the flesh and he rose in the flesh. That Jesus Christ, even after the resurrection, he remains fully and perfectly man. Not like Lazarus. Lazarus would again someday die. Jesus Christ rose never to die again. Jesus Christ who had laid down in a pitiful and a weak and a dishonorable body had been raised in honor and power and glory. A spiritual body. We don't know exactly what this means. What what kind of spiritual body will we have in the resurrection? We don't know. There will be similarities. It will be much like this body. This same body which is laid in the ground will be raised again. For those who are in Christ Jesus, but it will be better and stronger and honorable. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, he compares it to something that is sowed like a seed. Seed, I think about maybe an acorn, right? All the makings of an oak tree are there in that acorn, but it doesn't look like much. I can squish it between my fingers, but you bury it in the ground and it dies and it cracks open. And what comes forth? Something glorious, powerful. This might be a picture of Jesus' resurrected body, and that's what they want us to see, that he rose physically, but he did not raise like so many others whom he had raised. This is a picture of our resurrection to come. So then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, he also went in, and he saw, and he believed. Is he the first to get it? The apostle John, the first to get it, as he sees, he... He wasn't there to hear the message of the angels, we're not told. But simply upon seeing the empty tomb, seeing the grave clothes laying where they are, was this enough for this one to remember the promises of Jesus Christ and believe? It seems like it. But he goes on to say, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. So I think what's happening here, we know that John was the last to write his gospel. So you're talking here about, depending on your understanding, I'm thinking something like 35, 40 years later maybe. But, but you've, got this, you've got this period of time that has passed and his understanding with the sending of the Holy Spirit and, and with time and maturity and, 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 and thought and meditation on what had happened. He's looking back and now he's laughing at how little he actually knew. He believed, but he didn't fully understand. But just seeing the empty tomb apparently was enough for him. He saw and he believed. And then the disciples went back to their homes. What a thing. What a thing. I think we had this picture that they come to the empty tomb and all of a sudden the church is just booming, right? Look, the tomb is empty just like he said and everyone is brave and they're shaking their fists at the Jewish leaders and they're going to death at the hands of the Romans and they could care less what this world brings against them. That's not the picture. They went home. It says they went to their homes. They didn't even go to the same home. They all just dispersed to the various homes they were staying in, in and around Jerusalem. Verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. Mary of Magdala. 
I think that was the first place we stopped, when we, if I remember right, the, the, the first official place or the second maybe that we stopped on our visit to Israel was Magdala. And we went to a synagogue there and I couldn't help but wonder if that had been the place where this Mary had come to hear the word read, to offer up her prayers to God. And we know some things about Mary Magdalene. People have had some real twisted ideas about Mary over the years and it really bothers me. They've tried to make some type of a romantic relationship between Jesus and this Mary Magdalene because in the minds of perverted men, they can't see a Christ-honoring, clear, clean, platonic love like this. All they know is sexual love and perverse love. And so they impart that onto everyone else. But we know why Mary Magdalene loved Jesus so much. Do you remember? Because we read in Luke's gospel that she was one who had seven demons until she met Christ. Now, we don't need to immediately take our mind to like the, the garrison demoniac, these, these crazy men that are, that are ripping their clothes off and that are breaking any chains that are on them and that are cutting themselves with rocks or that are hiding out in the, uh, hiding out in the graveyards where nobody can pass through. That doesn't have to be the picture we have of everyone who is possessed by a demon. You remember there was the one right at the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry in Mark 1. We read about the one who was possessed by a demon who was sitting in the synagogue. I have to imagine this was a man that was sitting in a church just like this. And yet so possessed, so controlled, so filled with an evil spirit. That just by coming into the presence of Jesus Christ and hearing his teaching, he couldn't help but cry out. You see, that's the way that these demons work. You never see a possessed man coming to Christ Jesus on his own. It's always a friend that will bring them there, or someone else that will offer up prayers on their behalf, or them some coincidental meeting between them and Christ Jesus. But you never find them coming to Jesus on their own and falling on their face and saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many of them, though, look just like you and I, religious folks, going to the synagogue week after week and yet so bound by darkness. So filled with evil, so constrained by sin that the scripture can say they are filled with a demon. And we, I think that that is the proper picture of Mary Magdalene, Mary Magdalene, because you remember right there in Luke six, uh, in Luke is it Luke seven? Where is it? Yeah, Luke eight, where it talks about Mary having these seven demons. It says that she and other women had provided for the needs of Jesus and the disciples. So she was a woman of means, apparently. She was able to, I don't know, able to manage her money, able to manage her finances, able to maybe keep a marriage with a rich, I don't, I don't know. But for whatever, whatever way, she had some means that she was able to provide for the needs of Jesus after he had come to her and set her free. And I think that's the picture of why Mary loved Jesus so very deeply. When you've come into contact with the Lord of the universe and he has set you free from your bondage to sin. She's a picture of us, you get this. No, you're not possessed by demons. And, and I don't know. I, I, I don't know where's the line between being tormented by a demon, being haunted by a demon, being possessed by a demon. The, the Bible doesn't draw those lines, but there are some people that are so controlled by the evil one that the scripture can use that kind of language, having an unclean spirit. So I'm not saying she's exactly like us. And I'm not saying we need to run around trying to figure out what demons do we have in, we, in us and trying to figure out the names of certain demons and calling them down. That's not the picture. The picture is we too were once bound by darkness. And that freedom is only found in coming to Jesus Christ. And that one who has been set free from darkness and sin and Satan and death by Jesus Christ, they can't help but be filled by love for him. 
This is why she loved him. So Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stood and looked into the tomb. Excuse me, she stooped and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. Again, I say God always sends his messengers. They were there to announce the incarnation of Jesus Christ to Mary. They were there to announce the birth of Jesus to the shepherds. They had been there to comfort Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. But I think that there's maybe a picture here of, you remember there in the Holy of Holies, in the temple, that there were two cherubim, one at the head and one at the foot. And that God had said to his people, I will meet you there between the cherubim. And maybe this was meant to be a picture of sorts of, look, this is where I'm coming again and I will meet with you here. Because the angel said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. She still doesn't get it. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Now, is this because of his spiritual body, his resurrected body? Was this perhaps that he had blinded her eyes like he did the men on the road to Emmaus where they couldn't recognize him? Was it because she was just so overcome with sorrow? Was this because of the early morning light? Was this because of the tears in her eyes? Was it because of all these things together? We don't know. But she turns and looks in the face of Jesus Christ, the one she wanted more than anything else in that moment. And she couldn't see him. Again, I tell you, sorrow and loss and pain does amazing things with the mind. I can't help but wonder, how many tears of confusion have I shed? In that moment, if she would have just believed the promises of Christ, Look, I don't look down upon her because I do the same. How many times am I so filled with fear and sorrow and regret and turmoil and tears that I miss the promises of God as they're coming true right before my face? The very thing that he said would happen is happening and I find no joy. I find no, no hope. As a matter of fact, I think the opposite must be happening because I'm so filled with doubt. That's the picture. This woman who should have been overjoyed in that moment, instead she weeps and she sobs because she doesn't yet fully understand the gospel. She doesn't yet fully trust the promise of the resurrection because they don't have a, they don't have a category in their minds for this yet. You understand? The Christian has got to have a category of thought in their mind that says, no matter what my eyes tell me, no matter what the rest of the world tells me, if God has said it is so, it is so. That the things of this book are more real than anything out in this world before us. The time after time after time. He doesn't leave us without witness. That time after time after time, his promises have come true despite everything in front of me saying it's impossible. And so many Christians, they throw this away. I've talked before about the fact that if you can't get through the first three chapters of this book without, me, without believing that it means what it says, you have no business calling yourself a follower of Christ. We base our hope on the impossible happening. We base our hope on Christ Jesus who is dead, raising from the grave. We base our whole, our whole salvation, our whole hope on a miracle. But then so many men who place their, place their faith and their hope in this miracle, they then throw away the rest of the miracles in Scripture. We've got to have a category in our minds for the God who does the impossible. So Jesus says to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? 
it's almost it's similar to the way he'll speak to the men on the road to Emmaus. He's like, what are you guys talking about? What are you so down for? What are you so sad about? He's not taunting her. He's wanting her to respond. Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him. I just want to see him, even if he's dead. Look, if you don't want anything to do with him, that's fine. Just give him to me. If you don't want this dead body stinking up your garden, give him to me, and I'll take him. It's fine that you want nothing to do with this Christ, but I want him because he's everything to me. I love him. Can I tell you the story of what he's done for me? You give him to me and I'll just take him out of your way. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she knew that was his voice and that was her name. And she knew. All doubt was gone. All fear was gone. All confusion was cleared up. I know my sheep and I call them by name. And they hear my voice and they follow me. And I lay down my life for my sheep. I give them eternal life and no one will ever snatch them from my hand. Because he called her name. That's the question that matters, isn't it? Have you heard him call your name? Because all the evidence in the world isn't going to amount to anything. We've seen this. These people had seen the empty tomb. They had seen the angels. Seen the grave clothes lying there. They had heard the promises of God. But still doubt and fear persisted until he called their name. She turned to him and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbi, which means teacher. I wonder if she realized at this moment she was the first one to see the risen Lord. You remember what Elizabeth said when Mary had come to her? Why me of all people? Why do I have the honor of meeting with the mother of my Lord? Why has the Lord come to me? Well, now here we have Mary Magdalene, not Mary, Jesus' mother, not Mary, the brother, the sister of Lazarus, whom Jesus so clearly loved. Mary Magdalene, the one who had once been filled with seven demons. She had the privilege of seeing the risen Lord for the first time, and he called her by name, Mary. And apparently she grabbed onto him. Probably his feet, I have to imagine, just like the other women that we see Jesus encountering along the way. But she grabs on to him. And I have to imagine this is like a little child that had been lost. Have you ever lost your kid in the store? You lost him at the park. You lost your kid at some point, And you finally lay eyes on him again. And they come running to you. And they grab you like a little spider monkey. And they're not going to let go. She's clinging tight. She's, I'm not going to lose you again. I'm not going to let go of you again. But Jesus' response is interesting, right? He says to her, don't cling to me, for I've not yet ascended to the Father. Now some people, and I don't know that I can argue with them, some people say this has something to do with Jesus' body was still transitioning or there was something that was happening, but it doesn't make sense to me because when Jesus encountered the women along the road, they, they clung on to his feet and he didn't tell them the same thing. 
Or when Jesus would meet Thomas, he would tell him, you can put your hand in my side, you can put your hands here. I don't think this had anything to do with the physical state of Jesus' body. I think what he's saying is, you don't need to hold on to me like this. I'm not going yet. There's yet 40 days left. But I think more than this, what he's saying is, you don't need to cling to me like this, because even as I go, it is to your advantage. Because when I go, I will come to be with you in my spirit. I will dwell within your heart. You will be closer to me. You, you cling to me right now like a little spider monkey. I'm wearing you like a backpack as you're hugging on to me. You have no idea how close we will be as I come to dwell within you forever. And I will not leave you. And I will not forsake you. I think that's what he's saying to her here. He says to her, go to my brothers and say to them, I, ascend, I am ascending to my father and to your father, to my God and to your God. This is the first time, as best I can tell, don't correct me if I'm wrong, I like thinking this. I'm just kidding, come tell me if I'm wrong. This is the first time by my account that Jesus calls him his brothers. On the heels of such failure and such doubt and such unbelief, he says, I'm not ashamed to call you brother. Not because of anything that you have done, but because of everything that I have just done. I have made you clean. I've secured your adoption into the family of God. Now I am not ashamed. I am proud to call you brother. I'm going to my father and your father and my God and your God. Some people believe that he says my God and your God and my father and your father expressly to make clear that your relationship with the father is one of adoption. My relationship with the father is something altogether different and eternal. That may be it, but I think he's probably trying to drive the point home of the unity, the similarity. My God is your God and my father is your father. I've just won you entrance into my family once and for all. So Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he had said these things to her. I have seen the Lord. Again, I remind you, she saw the Lord before she saw the Lord. She saw the Lord and looked him dead in his face and she did not know it was the Lord until she heard her name. Mary. That's the question. Have you heard his name? Now, I did better this year. I broke off from Ephesians and I did an Easter sermon. Tell me a good job, please, Brian. <laughs> but you notice what I didn't do is I didn't do the whole case for Christ thing. I didn't try to lay out all these evidences. I didn't try to, try to bring in all these, uh, all these extra facts. I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't try to persuade you in some way. Because I would remind you that the way that the gospel writers speak about the resurrection of Jesus, it just happened. It's a thing. And either you've heard him call your name and you're going to believe that it is true or you won't. And so I don't see my job as giving you more evidence. You remember that the way that Matthew's gospel concludes is... Now, or, just before the giving of the Great Commission. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him. But some doubted. You can see the resurrected Jesus Christ and go to the mountain on which he has directed you and still doubt. What evidence am I going to give you to persuade you? I see my job this morning as being one singular thing. I'm taking you to the garden and I'm hoping, I am praying with everything within me that you will hear him call your name.
when Thomas finally got to lay eyes on Jesus, earning his name, Doubting Thomas. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. That's you. That's you. Do you remember the never-ending story? I hope you do. One of the weird things about that, about that movie, I guess, is the fourth wall keeps getting broken. He's reading this book and he's realizing they're talking to me. I'm in this. But do you understand that's you he's speaking about? He's saying, blessed is the one who believes without seeing. Because you can see without seeing. And you can see and not see. You can see Jesus Christ and not see the risen Lord. You cannot see Jesus Christ and you can see the risen Lord. If he gives you eyes to see. And he makes your heart burn within you. And you have heard him call your name. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Beloved, Jesus is alive. The Lord is risen. And if you will place your faith and hope and trust in him, you too will live forever. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. We thank you, Father, that you did not leave your son lying there in that grave. We thank you that Jesus is alive because we recognize that for those who have been joined to him in repentant faith, that when he raised, we too were raised. When he ascended, we too ascended. And when he sat down in heaven, we are seated there with him even now. We thank you that this word that we read from the scriptures is not just a story about him. It's a story about us, your saints. So, Father, I pray that if there is one here this morning that has not yet heard their name called, there is not yet one who has heard the shepherd calling them by name, that today would be the day their hearts would burn within them, that you would call them to yourself. Father, for those of us who have heard our name, for those of us who have given our lives to following Jesus Christ as Lord, Father, would you strengthen us and empower us and enable us to walk in that same faith. Father, we love you. We trust you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.